0: I'm Gary Knoll. This is the Progressive Commentary Hour. Each week at this time, we present information that is generally not presented in the mainstream media, or when it is, it's biased. Our program is in two parts today. The first part is going to be with Professor Michael Hudson. Professor Hudson is well known because he has that uncanny ability to take a look at trends economic trends, and then see how they interconnect with different things like the Federal Reserve and raising interest rates or lowering interest rates and what people should do about best places to put their money, which are safe and which are not safe, how much debt we're accruing and whether or not we can afford to pay it, whether or not we're living a reasonable life at the level of those people who are responsible for our economic well-being. And he gives us that insight because he counsels, as a special advisor, governments around the world. And unfortunately, we don't hear enough of him in the mainstream media in the United States. We will today. But our second guest today is Scott Ritter. Uh, Scott Ritter has been in the armed forces for decades. He currently is looking at what's happening in Ukraine, the conflict between the United Nations, the United States, its allies, and Russia. He is of the belief that virtually everything we have been told about the conflict is wrong. He does not support Russia. He abhors the idea that what has happened in Ukraine had to happen, but he understands why it happens and what our ultimate goal is, and that's serious. He believes that the goal is to use Ukraine as a proxy in order to destroy Russia, get rid of Putin, and then divide up Russia, balkanize it, for its economic assets and its geopolitical influence that it would no longer have, but those who control it would. Sounds impossible? Let's see what he has to say in the second part of our program. Now to my guest, Michael Hudson. Nice to have you with us today, Michael.
1: It's very good to be here again, Gary.
0: Michael, I'm going to open a forum with you explaining to our layout audience what kind of condition we're in. They know what kind of condition they're in. For some people, they're doing very well. For the professional class, they're doing okay. For the millionaire class, they're actually becoming more millionaires. But for the vast majority of Americans, they can't write you a check for $500. It would bounce. They have massive credit card bills. They have mortgages that they can't afford to pay. Car payments, student loan debts, they're struggling. And yet you would never know that by the mainstream media or the President's uh, State of the Union address. Also, people are confused. Do we have inflation or not? Are we in a recession or not? The rules seem to be changing. So you are one of the wisest persons in the United States who can answer all this for us. So I'm going to sit back, like everyone else, and if you would please, give us your state of the economy, honest and accurate as you always are. The form is yours.
1: Well, the question is, who is the we who are doing well, Uh, and uh, what is the experience of your listeners when they go to the store and they see the prices rising uh, faster than their wages are growing? the uh newspapers say that the economy is doing well because the federal reserve is bringing on a depression uh a recession the federal reserve says the cause of inflation is not monopolies it's not the american sanctions against russia that have pushed up uh oil prices and gas prices and food prices the problem is that uh labor is making too much money uh and that it's only labor that causes inflation And so the way to make inflation lower is to uh, 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 create enough unemployment. So labor uh, workers, wage earners, are going to be desperate uh, to go to work. Uh, The Biden administration certainly buys this. And it says, well, one of the problems of uh, uh, rising wages that's uh, hurting consumers so much is labor unionization. So uh, recently, when you had the rail workers uh, wanting to strike just for the right to take sick days, uh, the Biden administration refused to support them. And uh, the uh, mayor, uh, Pete, uh, who's supposed to be in charge of transportation, came on strongly in favor of the railroads uh, against labor. Uh, you have uh, certainly the Democratic Party. Uh, allying itself uh, uh, against labor and with the financial sector, saying if we can only raise uh, uh, interest rates fast enough to discourage employment, then uh, there will be uh, uh, workers with uh, less money, and uh, that will probably bring down the prices that consumers have to pay uh, on the theory that uh, all these price gains are the result, really, of labor becoming too greedy. Well, we know that the rate of inflation is far higher than the rate of wage gain. So wages cannot be really the cost of of living. We've seen uh, in the last few weeks companies doing mass layoffs, 10,000 workers here, uh, 20,000 workers there in most of the information technology fields uh, in the uh, northwestern uh, states of America. So uh, how are you going to... Uh, reconcile the fact that uh, there are always mass layoffs and and, and uh, employment uh, is uh, somehow uh, going up. Well, it turns out that the government's using a uh, mathematical model uh, for uh, allegedly uh, uh, seasonal variation uh, that uh, translates the actual fall employment to make it look as if it's a rise in employment, because uh, that's how uh, 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 you, you can use statistics to sort of what they all normalize. And their idea of normalization uh, is designed to uh, basically, you, you decide, what statistics do we want? And uh, we're going to pre- create a mathematical model that produces these statistics. Well, there are a lot of alternative sources in labor and in, uh, uh, employment statistics. Uh, uh, Mr. Williams' uh, shadow statistics is an example. Uh, but most of all, people can just look at their own conditions, going to the store, uh, the price of eggs, the price of, uh, farm crops. Farmers are not getting more, and, uh, the chicken raisers, uh, are not getting more. All of this is the, uh, intermediary monopolies that are in charge of distributing, uh, farm goods. Uh, and there are only a few of them, uh, that are, that are around. Uh, you have uh, monopolies making uh, money hand over fist, the pharmaceutical companies, uh, the uh, oil companies, uh, with the profits. Uh, what has been going up is not, uh, not wages, uh, but it's a huge uh, corporate profits resulting from monopoly rents, not earnings, not uh, more money that they're making on investing more and hiring labor more, but just in charging more because they have uh, a government that is uh, letting them do uh, whatever they want uh, while giving sanctimonious speeches, blaming labor for uh, the fact that not only uh, uh, labor is being fleek, for uh, uh, the fact that everything is uh, a tossing margin. It's uh, labor's own fault. It's blaming the victim.
0: Thank you. I appreciate the overview. We were told with some certainty, that we were going to bring such crippling sanctions against Putin and Russia that the population would find it necessary to rise up and overthrow him. That has not worked out. We said that we would cause the Rupal to lose its value. That has not worked out. We were told that as long as we could control the sanctions, he could not control the outcome. He would go broke. He couldn't afford to sustain a battle, and his economy was too small uh, to take on NATO. Tell us what we learned wrong and what has actually happened in Russia today with the ruble, with the sanctions, and with uh, the stability of Russia.
1: Well, their description of uh, who is going to get hurt uh, was uh, quite right, except they got the wrong country. It wasn't Russia that was hurt, it was uh, germany and uh europe uh by uh making the sanctions against russia and by blowing up uh, the north stream pipelines uh they've essentially caused mass uh, close downs of german industry the german steel industry the german fertilizer industry the italian glassmaking making industry So uh, the sanctions uh, have uh, hurt a large part of the world, but it's not Russia, it's uh, it's Europe. And you can say that this whole uh, fight in the Ukraine uh, has been to solidify control of the United States over Germany and Europe and lock Europe into reliance on the United States for its oil, its gas, certainly its arms, uh, and its other goods, its uh, uh, information technology goods, uh, now that uh, Biden has uh, uh, passed the uh, the favoritism law. So the result is that uh, uh, what's being broken up uh, is uh, the uh, so- solidity of NATO uh, and of Europe. Uh, some people call this uh, America shooting itself in its own foot. Uh, the sanctions have been a godsend for Russia in many ways. Uh, when you put sanctions uh, to isolate a country's uh, uh supplies uh this obliges the country to uh, essentially uh, produce uh its own goods and replace uh goods from the nato bloc and the dollar bloc uh with uh its own goods uh and, and with china uh the sanctions against uh, uh russian imports of, of food have led russia to become the largest grain exporter in the world uh the the, uh, the russian balance of payments has gone up uh pre- instead of uh, dividing up uh <laughs> Russia uh president Putin's uh, 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 approval rating is over 80 percent Putin has the highest approval rating of uh any other uh leader uh in the uh, uh reported in the world uh whereas uh, you've just seen in Germany's election in Berlin last Friday uh you have <laughs> the uh the nato leaders the uh, christian uh the uh i'm sorry the social democrat party and the uh the green party uh the two uh, nato hawk parties uh losing uh in favor of opponents of uh nato and opponents of the uh war in, in ukraine so uh the uh, u.s strategy is exactly the opposite of what it's ostensibly stated to be and the question is Once all of this destruction of the European economy, the mass inflation of Europe, the unemployment, the forcing of uh, German industry to uh, close up shop in Europe and move to the United States, or to Europe or somewhere else, or to, uh, to Russia or China or somewhere else, the destruction of the European economy had to be anticipated at the very beginning, but not stated. Uh, I worked uh, for the Hudson Institute for uh, five years in the 1970s, and any kind of a government program always had a study of the what you would call uh, the secondary effects, the external economies. I cannot believe that the government uh, didn't realize that when it put the sanctions on Russian oil and gas, that uh, of course the price would uh, go up uh, sixfold and germany is now paying american oil and gas producers six times as high a price for its gas uh than it was uh paying uh with russia that's why its industry cannot afford they continue to be uh, uh operating and uh, have to close down the united states is uh, gone uh sending trade representatives to europe and say well why don't you move from uh Peel and from uh, Munich and Stuttgart moved to Alabama, moved to the South, uh, some non-unionized American state, preferably, end uh, up reduced over here because uh, the Eurozone has now been turned into a dead zone. So basically, the uh, the designated enemy uh, in practice has been uh, uh, the the uh, American NATO partners, uh, not uh, not uh, Russia at all.
0: We have another issue. The average American's unaware of it or doesn't understand it. And that is the movement led by the World Economic Forum and the banking community and BlackRock and other major forces to have a digital currency, get rid of cash altogether. That's something they can control. And they make it seem really good. For example, the idea of, of having a chip, small chip, the size of a a grain of of sand, not even the grain of rice. The technology is allowed to be that small, implanted between the thumb and the forefinger. So anytime you go into a store, you don't have to worry about ID, you don't have to worry about any uh, cash, because you just pick up your shopping cart and go around take what you want, because everything has a code on it. So as you pick it up and put it in your basket, it's automatically charged against your account. You just go in, buy what you want, and leave. People think, that's great. No longer standing in line? No. Not worrying about whether or not your check is going to bounce, you have enough cash? No. So they're, they're selling the whole idea of convenience. They're doing the same when they put the, uh, little, uh, the little information system in your home. Um, Alexa, what, uh, what's the temperature in Alaska today? Instantly an answer. What's the best route to drive to work today with least traffic? Instant answer. But also, every single thing heard and seen in your house from that apparatus is fed back. And that information is collated, collected, and frequently sold. Our medical records are now being sold. You have no longer privacy uh, because corporations want to know what's your state of health. And on this card that they wanted to give us for the vaccine was also your health information, not just not whether you were vaccinated or not, but everything else about your body, your entire medical history. That would So if you went to get a job and the employer wanted to know, do you have a heart condition and wouldn't hire you if you did, they would know instantly. So we've gone to the digitalization of all things. And now... What I've been reading, and you'll tell us how accurate it is and why we should or should not be concerned about it, is the the bail-in system. Now, I know Barack Obama signed on New Year's Eve, the last year he was in office, a bail-in policy similar to Cyprus. When Cyprus was going broke, they simply stopped allowing people to take all the money out of their accounts, except for the many of the Russian oligarchs who got their money out, because it was a great place to store a lot of their offshore gains, illicit or illicit. In any case, people who might have had a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand $150,000, they were limited to a certain amount. I believe it was $10,000. All the rest, the bank was able to keep and use. And they sued and they lost. The banks had the right to do it. Now, I understand the banks also had the right to do it. And some banks, and I've actually seen a video of this, this isn't hearsay, where people went to a a Bank of America branch, and a bunch of them, there must have been 20, 30 people in just this one area that was being filmed, and people were saying, my bank account is $1,700 short, but they won't tell me why, where the money went. Then another person says, mine was uh, also short. Then he says, how many in here have shortage? All these hands went up, but they couldn't get information. So then the question is, What's going to be happening? And is there going to be a problem with the banks? Do they have enough money to cover people who want to withdraw their money from the banks? And if so, isn't that leading us to a big run on banks? Because people, the moment they hear that there might be a problem, and I'm not saying there is, I'm just saying what could happen, it would happen all over the world and has. And then they don't have their money. The bank has money. They have your assets and they can keep them. What do you see with this? Is this legitimate or not, and part or whole, and what should we be concerned about, and what can we do with the money if we do have hard-earned savings? I'm told, I haven't confirmed it, that there's $15 trillion in retirement savings in the United States, and that's a lot of money, and there's a lot of greed, and people who know how to get their hands on that money would not hesitate, if they could, to keep it in with their control. Your thoughts, please.
1: Well, you've asked two questions there. I want to talk about the first uh, question that uh, that you raised about uh, digitalization uh, of money and replacing cash. Uh, my wife is quite insistent on standing in line when she goes to the uh, grocery. One thing, there's <coughs> you the price of vegetables uh, and or the other food that she gets. Uh, but when she goes to the checkout counter uh, and she uh, they put a higher price on the screen. She uh, has to call the manager over and says, "Well, this is supposed to be the sales price." Or uh, when she goes to Target, Target uh, uh, lets you uh, get the uh, price uh, the match price with the, the lowest price target store. So if uh, there's uh, some vegetables for 250 a pound, but the uh, match price at Target, some target stores is uh, $1.25 a pound, she says, "Well, I want the match price of $1.25 a pound. Well, imagine if uh you couldn't go to the checkout counter and and uh, uh you just uh make your uh uh whatever it is uh, electronic symbol uh charge you don't have any way to talk back about the overcharge. There's nothing you can do. Uh immediately people would be deprived of uh uh being uh, able to insist that the prices that are charged at the grocery store is actually the price that uh is advertised. Well, you can expand this to the whole idea of, uh, of money, that, of the retirement savings uh, with the banks or with the money management firms uh, that handle them, uh, the uh, the brokerage firms. People will be uh, uh, tempted to uh, put their money in uh, whatever uh, company promises uh, the highest return, and uh, the highest returns are almost always uh, uh, sponsored by Hansi schemes and crooks, uh, uh, is, uh, you know, put your money with us. So, uh, basically the problem is a lack of control. I think most uh, of your listeners certainly want to be able to uh, pay in cash or with their own credit card, uh, to decide, uh, exactly, uh, what price they want to pay for. They want to be able to look at the receipts when they go to the store and say, are these receipts actually what I got or are they, uh, something else uh, you, you'd lose all of that uh with uh, the idea of the uh electronic uh banking rules that are being sponsored and uh, the same thing with retirement savings people would uh, lose most of their retirement savings and if uh the democrats and republicans are indeed able to get together and uh, get rid of social security and uh uh medicare uh then uh you people uh basically be uh given a choice We'll take what you save in social security and give it to one of the uh, firms that uh, uh are among our campaign contributors uh who've been uh leading us to uh, uh get rid of social security and give the money to uh, uh these uh Wall Street uh, investment firms or cryptocurrency heads or uh, uh uh whatever so uh, i think most people are uh have a reason to be worried about uh, just who's doing the computerizing and uh, the fact that uh, the computer programs uh, very often do not uh, reflect the reality that uh, they're confronted with.
0: Also, we have to look at the fact that already Facebook, Twitter, Google, Wikipedia um, have all censored, canceled and punished individuals who were telling the truth to challenge the official narrative. Once they have control over your currency, they could apply the same social credit score. If they didn't like what you've written, done, said, protested, they could just lock you out of having any resources. Final question, Michael, and that is, where can we reasonably uh, expect some safety with our savings if we want to withdraw our money out of the banks... Because after all, the FDIC only uh, will protect us up to $250,000, and they only have about $250 billion more or less in their account. You're talking about trillions of dollars if a banking system goes down. So how do we know that they'll be rebooted in their money? We don't. And look what happened in 2008 when all the banks were bailed out, the insurance companies bailed out, uh, major corporations like General Motors was bailed out. AIG bailed out, but not a single small business or a single person. So we know from previous experience, we're not high up on their priority list. So where can we put our money if we want it to be safe?
1: Well, the wealthiest investors that are highest on the priority list are putting their money in government debt because uh, uh, the Treasury can always print the money uh, to pay its uh, Treasury bills and Treasury bonds to pay its interest rates. And because most of the government debt is held by the wealthiest uh, uh, 10% or so, uh, you can be sure that they're going to get paid. And a lot of uh, 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 the wealthiest investors, the billionaires, are bailing out of the stock market, bailing out of the junk bond market, and uh, they're uh, just putting their money in safety uh, uh, in the government debt, knowing that the government's not going to uh, default on its own debt, but will leave uh, the public at large, Uh, holding uh, the bag uh, when all of a sudden the game is over and uh, the stock market is going down to reflect the fact that uh, how can profits be up except by monopoly pricing if uh, the uh, consumers and the wage earners aren't paid enough money to buy the goods that they produce? You're going to have a spiraling downturn, and uh, your very first question was, well, where is the economy going? Are we in a uh, depression or not? Uh, It's not so much a depression, it's the fact that since uh, 2008, and actually ever since World War II, every recovery has spent at a higher and higher and higher debt level, uh, leaving people having to pay so much of their credit, their debt, you mentioned the credit card debt that's going way up, that they don't have enough money. To buy uh, goods and services. Well, if they're paying uh, the creditors, the the credit card companies, the bankers uh, their loans, then obviously uh, they're not uh, their wages. are not uh, contributing to inflation of uh, uh, goods and service prices. Uh, what they're inflating is the wealth of the creditors uh, and the financial sector. And uh, that seems, and the financial sector is uh, translating its power. Uh, into the ability to put uh, uh, apparently uh, what my my doctor says is the junk uh, uh, advantage uh, 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 Medicare Advantage Plus and other things that even the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times are saying is a utter ripoff uh, of, of people. Uh, you can just imagine that this ripoff is what would be replacing the regular Medicare and the regular uh, health coverage. So in uh, it, 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 we're going into an unsafe epoch. Uh, I, I think uh, probably government debt, is, even for people that don't like the government, uh, certainly the billionaires like government. And they know that their money safer there uh, than it is, and— uh, So uh, to buy
0: treasuries, buy treasury, right? Yeah. T-bills. Also, yeah. what, what real quick answer. What about the credit unions that have been long-term, do not invest in any risky, they're just dealing with people's savings, Well, credit unions? People,
1: credit unions is an enemy because credit unions take people's savings and lend uh, to each other. And the banks want this business for themselves. They don't want credit unions as a the rivalry. They want to make the loans and decide who gets uh, how much money and uh, what the interest rates are. So one of the byproducts of the reforms that are being sponsored by Biden and the Democrat uh, is to hurt the credit unions.
0: Michael, you've given us a lot of important insights, and we appreciate it. Professor Michael Hudson, and where can people go to read your work and see your latest book?
1: Well, I have my website, michael-hudson.com, and my books are available on Amazon. Uh, plenty of them Uh Uh, The Destiny of Civilization is my most recent book, and I have a a new book coming out next month on the collapse of antiquity.
0: Good for you. We look forward to it. We're going to take a break and come back and be back in a moment with Scott Ritter, giving us a lot of real original insight and truth about what the likely outcome will be in Ukraine. Please stay with us. Welcome, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. On the line now, you can watch this uh, interview, is Scott Ritter. Scott has an extremely detailed background, but I'll just give you the overview that for the United Nations, he was the key person for about seven years determining the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq and other places. He served under General Schwarzkopf in Desert Storm. Uh, he helped uh, the military during the Cold War uh, against Russia and also in the Middle East. So he's a formidable analyst. And we've invited him today to discuss his perspective on what we're hearing because everything we're hearing, quite simply, is from people who have a vested interest in controlling the narrative. And everyone in the mainstream media goes along with it. You never see anyone challenging the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense Or the White House. They just say, okay, that Russia is losing, Ukraine is winning. And I find that hard to believe based upon the other outside sources that I rely upon. Nice to have you back with us, Scott.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Scott, would you take us on what you see today as what is demonstrably false in the narrative and what you see as the truth of the narrative? and what the likely outcome will be before we get to the point where there may be nuclear, uh, some form of nuclear confrontation, which none of us want to see happen. And I don't think Russia wants to see it, and I certainly don't believe that uh, Americans want to see it. But that doesn't mean that there might not be people who encourage that. So the forum is yours. We're interested in, in effect, your classroom on the air about foreign policy.
2: Well, thank you very much. I, th- I think the first place to start is to frame this conflict um, because a popular narrative here in the United States, and it's one that's uh, actively uh, promulgated by the US government and the mainstream media, is that um, Russia is to blame for this conflict, that Russia, uh, in an unprovoked fashion, carried out a uh, an aggressive invasion of Ukraine uh, without justification. Um, and if you buy into that narrative, then you are more likely to agree with the uh, solutions that are being put forward to the problem, um, the solution of uh, you know, providing Ukraine with the ability to continue resisting this unprovoked act of Russian aggression. Um, and then you also buy into the notion that Russia as a nation state needs to be confronted, Therefore, we justify the sanctioning of Russia. We justify, uh, without question, the destruction of the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines carrying Russian gas uh, to Germany. Uh, we say that had to be done because we had to weaken the stranglehold that Russia had on the European economy through the provision of cheap natural gas. And we could just go on and on about all the you know, policy objectives and directions that um, are justified by buying into this basic fundamental uh, precept that Russia is to blame. This is the biggest lie that's out there. I'm not saying that Russia is innocent. I'm not saying that Russia could not have pursued other means. But nobody has articulated this because what we do know is that Russia did not want this conflict at all. Zero. Had no intention of going to war with Ukraine. We know, uh, thanks to, for instance, Ambassador William Burns, U.S. Ambassador to Russia, who in April 2008 wrote a memorandum he called Nyet means nyet, no means no. Uh, He was talking about Russia's red line regarding NATO's effort to bring Ukraine into NATO. And he said this would represent an existential problem for Russia that would eventually manifest itself in a Russian military incursion into Ukraine. Now, the important thing is, the cause and effect relationship that's here. He didn't say that Russia seeks to invade Ukraine no matter what. He said that if NATO seeks to bring Ukraine into the ranks of NATO, that they will trigger a series of events that will ultimately culminate in a Russian military intervention into Ukraine because Russia views Ukraine as its critical sphere of influence. And yet in November of 2008, The United States, despite the warning given to them by William Burns, worked with NATO to extend an invitation to Ukraine to join NATO, which means that the people behind that decision knew at least about the potential, if not probability, if not guaranteed actuality, that this decision would lead to war with Russia. So in 2008, the United States and NATO embarked on a policy direction that they knew could lead to war with Russia. They made that decision anyways. In 2014, um, the United States uh, undertook a regime change operation in Kiev, uh, supporting right-wing neo-Nazi elements, uh, empowering them to work with radical pro-American elements in Ukraine politics to replace the constitutionally elected president of Ukraine, Viktor Yanukovych, and replace them with a radical revolutionary government whose sole focus was to provoke conflict with Russia. And we see this. They, the, the 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 Maidan revolution took place in February. By April, the new Ukrainian government, which was overwhelmingly infiltrated and influenced by right-wing parties such as Svoboda. Uh, the right sector, a neo-Nazi group that openly embraces the ideology of Stepan Bandera, a Ukrainian nationalist with close links to Adolf Hitler and the murder of hundreds of thousands of people, including tens of thousands of Jews. They declared war on ethnic Russians. Simply put, they basically said any ethnic Russian who is in opposition to the coup that took place in February is a terrorist. And they authorized anti-terrorist operations. They were at war with ethnic Russians, and this triggered a series of events that led to Russia doing exactly what William Burns said he would do, militarily intervening on the side of the ethnic Russians against this new neo-Nazi-affiliated Ukrainian government backed by the United States. Now, this conflict led to uh, a series of efforts to bring about peace. Why? Because the gambit failed. The Ukrainian military, rather than crushing the ethnic Russians, found itself surrounded um, in the Donetsk Republic, uh, the Donetsk Oblast, part of Ukraine with a significant ethnic Russian population. And 10,000 Ukrainian troops uh, faced the uh, threat of imminent death and destruction. Uh, and so the Ukrainian government prevailed on the French and German governments, both of whom are NATO governments, by the way, which were part of the decision to bring Ukraine in to intervene to create what they called the Minsk Accords, a ceasefire agreement designed to save the Ukrainian army from destruction. Um, in 2015, a because the first one didn't quite take on, the 2015 Minsk II came into being, uh, ne- uh, negotiated by Petro Poroshenko, Ukrainian president, uh, Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, and uh, I think Francois Hollande, the French president, all three of them said that they wanted a ceasefire that exchanged um, autonomy for the ethnic Russians, respecting their right for language, religion, culture, uh, in, in exchange for Russia saying that the Donbass is part of Ukraine. Um, this agreement was there. It needed to be implemented. It never was. Russia continued to push for its implementation uh, up until the very end in fact in june of 2021 when uh, when russian president vladimir putin met with american president joe biden in geneva um switzerland in a in, in for a peace agreement a peace summit uh putin said this this whole issue of tensions around ukraine could go away if minsk would be implemented and biden promised to let it happen but he lied uh that we made no effort the germans and the french made no effort. and now we know why because they made a decision that Minsk wasn't about peace, it was to buy time so that Ukraine could build a military capable of defeating the ethnic Russians, that, you know, the idea was to freeze in place the Russians so that NATO could train the Ukrainian military. And we saw the United States put a military facility in western Ukraine, uh, which trained one battalion of training forces every 55 days. And I apologize for my dogs, but... Um, there's construction taking place, and they're not happy about it. But uh, the, the 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 fact is, this war was thrust upon Russia. Russia had no other option than to intervene militarily when every option they put out there to create peace was 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 brushed aside. When Angela Merkel, Francois Hollande, and Petro Poroshenko all say that the Minsk peace agreement was a sham, that means that the West can't be trusted. Now we know another thing. Even after the conflict started, Russia pursued peace. There were three peace negotiations in short order between March 2nd and March 6th, where Russia tried to get Ukraine to the table, and they succeeded. By uh, April 1st, there was going to be a peace agreement signed in Istanbul that would have brought an end to this conflict, but that was stopped by NATO. Uh, It wasn't Russia that stopped it. It was NATO that stopped this. Boris Johnson intervened to say no. Why? Because the NATO objective is to destroy Russia, not to go to peace with Russia. And a key element of destroying Russia is stripping Ukraine away from the Russian sphere of interest. A 2019 RAND Corporation study outlines exactly how that would be and why it would be. And it's exactly what the West has been trying to do. So we're in a situation right now where everybody's saying that Russia is to blame. But when you look at it, Russia is the only partner that's been looking for peace. But now we, people say, well, why doesn't Russia therefore come to the negotiating table? One, why would ne- Russia negotiate with nations that have lied to it from day one? Nations that claim to want a peace, claim to support the Minsk Accords, but now openly say it was all a sham, that they lied to Putin from the very beginning. Vladimir Putin, late last year, uh, in a in a presentation to uh, Russian wives of service members uh, deployed in in Ukraine, said the biggest mistake he made in this whole thing was signing minutes, that he should have finished the job, he should have had the Russian military destroy the Ukrainian military in 2014, then this whole problem would be over. But he believed in peace, that peace should be given a chance, but he will never make that mistake again, which means that Russia has now been compelled to go down a path of of resolving this issue militarily. And that's what they're doing. But this is only after NATO turned a Russian-Ukrainian conflict into a NATO- Russian conflict by providing tens of billions of dollars of weapons, equipment, training, financial support to resurrect a defeated Ukrainian military and send them on the offensive against uh, uh, the Russians. The Russians have mobilized in response and now prepared to carry out uh, what I believe will be the final phase of this conflict. But everybody again is blaming Russia, blaming Russia. I think people need to understand that Russia has no choice to do what it's doing, that to do nothing means that Russia will allow the West to dismember it, to destroy it. The economic sanctions have been placed against Russia. Uh, now, thanks to uh, a Harvard professor, uh, Kenneth uh, Rogoff, I believe his name is, spoke at Davos recently. Uh, he said that the sanctions are part of a regime change policy. Now we know the truth. This isn't about Ukraine. This is about Russia. This is about getting rid of Vladimir Putin. And this is why this conflict is an existential conflict for Russia. Russia cannot lose this conflict because if it loses this conflict, it means Russia will no longer exist. And if Russia no longer exists, as Dmitry Medvedev, the former president, said, the world will no longer exist because Russia has nuclear weapons. And the purpose of those nuclear weapons is to prevent the very scenario from unfolding that many in the West are are, are claiming to support, a Ukrainian thrust against Crimea to recapture. It. That's Russian territory as far as the Russians are concerned. The Ukrainians recapturing Donbass, that's Russian territory, just like the United States would view any effort by Mexico to reclaim California, Texas, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and the other states that were stolen from Mexico back in the the mid-19th century as an existential threat to America. Russia will view any effort by Ukraine to reclaim the territories that have been absorbed by Russia as a result of a war that Russia did not want to fight to begin with.
0: I appreciate that overview. Thank you, Scott. Now let's bring it up to today. Based upon what we have been recently told on a daily basis, Russia's lost the most soldiers of any time in the in the conflict year year long conflict. Just last week, uh, that they're on the defensive, and that now that there's new equipment coming into Ukraine, they don't talk about who's going to service it, who's going to how long it'll. Uh, take to people learn how to use this and why in the world would Russia allow anything that can be a harm to them when they have the satellite and the intelligence capacity to stop it in transit uh, it is just mind-blowing that somehow Russia doesn't know anything and they're going to allow all this equipment to get to the front lines to be used against them from a stra- strategic point of view could you just explain now Well, you know, what are the pieces on the chessboard in this between Ukraine and Russia?
2: Well, again, we we have to understand that this is a conflict that has gone through several transitions. Um, Russia does not want a decisive conflict with NATO. Because a decisive conflict with NATO uh, creates the real possibility of the use of nuclear weapons. So Russia has been involved from the very beginning in escalation management. Uh, They don't want this conflict to spin out of control. Um, The West claims to be involved in escalation management, but they've escalated in the wrong direction. Uh, We see the Germans transitioning from being concerned about providing helmets because if they provided helmets to Ukrainian forces. They could be considered to be a party to the conflict to now providing tanks uh, and and talking about the provision of aircraft. Um, You know, so we we see the, the trajectory the trajectory of nato one being one towards confrontation with russia and therefore it's incumbent upon russia to manage this escalation now we again we have to talk about how we got to where we are today because it's one thing to take a snapshot of where we are but you got to understand how we got here because that influences a lot of the decisions russians are making today when this war started it wasn't designed to be a long war it wasn't designed to be a decisive war with nato was designed to create pressure on the Ukrainian government to get them to negotiate a peace settlement that Russia was trying to get uh, through Minsk. That is a recognition of the autonomy of Donbass and the the, the annexation of Crimea. Um, And they were succeeding. The Russians were very concerned about this conflict. And we know now by listening to Vladimir Putin that even though we take a look at the economic situation today, uh, Russia wasn't always certain that uh, their economy would do well in the face of these uh, concerted uh, U.S. European-backed sanctions. Um, Putin has acknowledged that many of his closest advisors were talking about a 15, 20, 25 percent, um, you know, uh, reduction in the in the in the Russian economy, and this would have been potentially disastrous. No economy could go 25 percent without there being severe repercussions. And when you have economic, um, you know, reductions of this nature that could manifest itself in um, domestic political unrest. Uh, This is, of course, what the the Harvard professor was talking about, using economic sanctions to create a regime change movement in Russia. You combine that with, and again, in the West, we give short shrift to this. The notion of Russia fighting Ukraine is very unpopular in Russia, very unpopular in Russia, uh, because the Russians don't view the average Ukrainian is the enemy. Now, there's a difference between the average Ukrainian and the Western Ukrainian supporters of Bandera, Stepan Bandera. Those are the enemy. They're the ideological enemy of, they should be the ideological enemy of any nation in the world, but they are definitely the ideological enemy of Russia. Um, but Russia didn't want to go in and kill Ukrainians, uh, destroy the nation. They went in relatively soft. Uh, this, this war was turned into a soft approach by Russia. And one of the reasons why they wanted the soft approach is they were concerned about the domestic political ramifications of this conflict. That's why they didn't mobilize up front. Everybody's saying, why didn't Russia mobilize from day one? Because to mobilize from day one could have created the very domestic political unrest that people were hoping for to remove Putin from power. So Putin is playing a very delicate balancing game economically and uh, domestically uh, from a political standpoint, where he cannot overreach. He doesn't have, he didn't mobilize and they don't want to be seen as going to war against Ukraine, which means that while you can take out certain critical infrastructure, you leave the trains, you leave the bridges, you leave the roads, you leave the ability for Ukraine to function as a modern nation state. Um, But when NATO made the decision to turn this into a proxy conflict between NATO and Russia, uh, you know the Russians. First of all, they had to be be very careful. They had to make sure that, first of all, that the Russian people understood what had happened. And sure enough, the Russian people understand this is no longer a fight between Russia and Ukraine. This is a fight between Russia and the collective West. That's at least in the mindset of the Russian people. Now, empowered with this new domestic political base, uh the strength, Putin could begin a mobilization. And we saw even with this support. That mobilization was controversial. Hundreds of thousands of Russians fled the country. Uh, there was, there was, you know, people were saying, you know, why are we doing this? Do we really want a war? But the mobilization has turned out to be successful. They now have over three hundred thousand troops ready to engage. They they started the mobilization of defense industry at the same time. Normally, a transition uh, from a civilian-based uh, industry into a defense industry has economic consequences but the Russians were able to manage this to mitigate those consequences so that Russian economy continues to grow. Putin talked about a 25 potential 25% reduction. That turned out to be less than 2%. And now the Russian economy is growing. Uh, people have talked about the energy sanctions as strangling the Russian um, economy because Russia allegedly pegs its uh, budget based upon $70 a barrel oil. And if you can keep the price of oil below $70, you starve the Russian economy. Well, to prove how wrong they are, Uh, the Russians, despite the fact that these sanctions and a war, a war that is very expensive, Russia ran a $38 billion budget surplus last year, meaning that everything that was designed to strangle the Russian economy, the Russian economy has grown. It has backfired. This again gives Russia more strength. So when we talk about today, Russia, why isn't Russia interdicting? Well, Russia is interdicting now. Russia has said, We're going to take out the bridges. We're going to take out the rail lines. We're going to take out the roads. There will be no free pass because Russia is finally empowered economically and empowered politically to turn this into a war against Ukraine because it's no longer Ukraine is no longer Ukraine. I think people need to understand that there is no sovereign Ukrainian state anymore. Ukraine is a de facto proxy of NATO and you need none other than the Ukrainian Minister of Defense to tell you this and here's one of the ironies uh there, there was something created called the Center for countering disinformation it's a uh it's an arm of the Russia, of the Ukrainian presidency uh funded by the United States backed by the State Department and they have created a a, a blacklist of um, Russian propagandists I'm included on this blacklist which is sort of disturbing as an American citizen to have my taxpayer dollars uh, go with the support of the State Department to create an entity designed to suppress my free speech. You don't have to agree with me, but I think everybody should agree that I have a constitutional right to speak. But apparently, the Ukrainians say no. The number one sin that I was accused of by the Ukrainians, number one, was that I called the conflict back in March a proxy war between NATO and, and Russia. They said it's not. This is a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Well, the Ukrainian defense minister has come out last year and said it is a proxy war between NATO and Russia, and Ukraine is a de facto member of NATO. Exactly what I said, but he said it now, so I look forward to his inclusion on the same propagandist list next to my name. But uh, my point is that this war is very much a proxy conflict. The Russian people know this, and Russia is now going to begin to take the measures necessary uh, to block these shipments. Had they done this earlier, It would have led to an escalation, the potential of escalating the conflict prematurely and getting NATO sucked in. Russia is embarked on a course of action that's designed to allow it to prevail militarily, while at the same time ensuring that they don't unduly provoke NATO uh, to generate a NATO uh, intervention, because that could lead to a nuclear conflict.
0: Final question. Given all that you've said, it would seem even to someone who is functionally unaware of this difference in power, that Russia has the intelligence, the satellites, they have the Air Force, and they have all their special, special uh, departments, but they haven't, to my knowledge, they haven't even used yet uh, their cyber warfare capacities, which is formidable, just like the Chinese, and so Americans keep thinking, and the people on television keep thinking, "Well, if we just had more boots on the ground, well, we do have boots on the ground." You know, if they just had more of this weapon, that weapon, not realizing that for whatever reason—and I'm sure it's strategic—they have not yet implemented something that could close down all the electricity, close down all the satellites and cell phones, because when you start getting into cyber warfare, and I've read what I have as a layperson on the topic, it can devastate a country, and. What are your thoughts on them being able to use this time out that uh, the element of not just massive power that they have in all areas that has not been fully used? It's like someone putting an arm behind their back and fighting you. It's different when they suddenly pull out the other arm. Your thoughts, please.
2: Well, you know, the the Russians started this conflict with literally one arm tied behind their back. They've been in the gradual process of, freeing up that arm and today uh, the ukrainians are getting ready to be hit with both fists but even then the russians haven't totally brought to bear all of their resources um the, the russians don't have the objective of destroying the west if they did the west would be destroyed um russia would probably be destroyed as well because nuclear war is a two-edged sword everybody dies a cyber war is also one of those things you know the west has been carrying out a uh an extensive cyber, uh, cyber operation against Russia for some time now. Um, you know, uh, Edward Snowden's, uh, revelation just what some of the things that we've been doing against, uh, Russia and Russia is aware of that. And every once in a while, Russia tickles us back just to remind us that they're aware. If you remember uh, a couple of years ago, um, there was a, you know, shutdown of, uh, of, of, of great proportions. I forget what the, the sentinel or something but it was, a, it was a it was a scandal because basically Russian hackers came in and shut down, um, you know, American, uh, you know, uh, computer infrastructure. Uh, they had infiltrated everything. And the Russians hit the switch down. It went. And I think Russia was sending a signal that um, we can do to you what you think you can do to us. And we're proving it right now. Uh, Russia could shut down our power grid. Russia could disrupt communications. Russia could make sure that we never communicate again. Um now we. I'm not saying that we can't do the same to Russia, but I'm saying that we need to understand that Russia hasn't even begun yet the fight, uh, and people also need to understand that the first level of strategic escalation for Russia outside of Ukraine won't be nuclear weapons unless we initiate with nuclear weapons. Russia has um, entire categories of uh, conventional weapons of a strategic nature that they haven't yet employed. Hypersonic warheads on uh, missiles that um, can can hit with precision. Uh, nation capitals and uh, decapitate leadership. If that, you know, Russia has said we will hit decision making centers. Uh, when they say that, that's not going to be a 300 kiloton nuclear warhead, at least not at the beginning. It's going to be a, um, you know, 1,000 pound, uh, warhead on a hypersonic, uh, you know, 1,000 pound explosive on a hypersonic warhead that the U.S. can't defend from. We don't have the ability to shoot this down. Um, and we're about to see on the battlefield, Russia is going to bring to bear. Technologies and uh, methodologies that uh, have so far far been excluded from the battlefield. In all of this, let's just keep this in mind: that with this one hand behind its back, Russia has killed, by some accounts, two hundred seventy-five to three hundred thousand Ukrainian soldiers. People should chew on that number for a second because it's massive, and I I don't think people quite understand what I just said. The United States during World War II lost a little over three hundred thousand troops on both fronts, fighting Imperial Japan in Nazi Germany, 300,000. Ukrainians have lost in less than a year that number of troops fighting the Russians and the Russians have been fighting with one arm tied behind their back. Uh, Russia is getting ready to bring both fists out. Both fists will not be gloved. They will be exposed. And um, by the time this conflict ends, it's it's entirely possible that the Ukrainian figures will easily be doubled, maybe tripled. We're looking at the potential of a three quarters of a million Ukrainian men being killed in this conflict. That's a realistic number. Um, the Ukrainian economy has already suffered more than a trillion dollars in damage. By the time this is done, that number will probably quadruple. There will be no Ukrainian economy. There will be no Ukrainian nation state. Ukraine has lost 20 percent of its territory permanently. Russia will never give it back. By the time this conflict is done, there's a chance for another 20 to 25 percent of Ukrainian territory being taken over by Russia permanently, which means Ukraine will cease to exist as a modern nation state and will cease to exist as a state in its current configuration. This is This is the byproduct of what the West has done, uh, you know, by by getting Ukraine involved in this war. Anybody who thinks that America is Ukraine's friend, just chew on what I just said for a second. America is a friend to nobody. We're willing to sacrifice everybody to achieve our objectives. In the case of Russia, we're failing. We're not achieving these objectives.
0: I appreciate all your insights. I would just say to the audience, keep in mind. We have outstanding investigative journalists, Chris Hedges, Abby Martin, Max Blumenthal, Aaron Monte, Glenn Greenwald, um, to name a few, Naomi Wolf. But think of all the outstanding journalists who have yet to find the courage to challenge other journalists who are just talking as propagandists. I look at all the mainstream media as propagandists, even some of the alternative media as propagandists. They're controlled They're silent and they're they're challenged to the Pentagon, but we have a large group of people who are very powerful behind the scenes, associated with the World Economic Forum, associated with the Council on Foreign Relationship. They're mixed into all these different power groups who say war is good for business, and indeed it is, but war is not good for anyone who's not making a business from it. And those voices are yet to be heard. We have yet to have a single major national movement against this war in Ukraine, and we should. Uh, there will be a peace rally coming up, but you'll only have a small number of people. They're tiny fraction, and uh, yet we need more people to be aware of how they're being lied to. But unfortunately, the mainstream media is the vehicle and the platforms, and they're they're all on the side of the neocons, uh, the hegemonic powers that be. Thank goodness you're out there with your experience and background and the challenges you face of being ostracized and condemned. Fortunately, you're not on their kill list yet, are you?
2: I am on the kill list. I've been on the kill list for uh, some time now, but um, I think people are going to find that um, I'm I'm hard to kill. I'm hard to shut up and I'm harder to kill.
0: (laughs) Good for you. Scott Ritter, thank you once again, and we look forward to an update whenever you have information that's important. Please share it. We're worldwide, number one progressive radio network in the world. Appreciate you being with us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: My guest, Scott Ritter, and hopefully this will get disseminated across the different platforms because it's current in a situation that requires us to know the full picture. Thank you all for listening.